Thank you, Jason. Let's uh, pray, shall we, as we uh, come to look at God's Word. The Spirit came to Ezekiel and said, You shall say to the people, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And that Sovereign Lord is our Sovereign Lord, who speaks uh, in power to us. Uh, by his word. And we pray, Sovereign Lord, that you would speak to us again this evening as we come to uh, look at your word. Pray for clarity, to understand it. And most of all, Lord, we pray for obedient hearts. We pray that you would uh, renew our hearts of stone into being hearts of flesh, that we might walk in your ways uh, and uh, please you uh, as your faithful people. So help me as I speak, help us as we listen to hear your word uh, and to obey it for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, what on earth is God up to? What on earth is God up to? I wonder when was the last time that question flashed through your mind. Uh, Maybe it's going through your mind at the moment. Perhaps you've come off the back of a difficult week. Maybe you're thinking, what is God up to in my family? What's God up to in my workplace? What's God up to in our world? Where is God in all that's going on? What's he up to? Ezekiel is a book that is essentially confronting uh, that question. What is God up to? What's he doing? Uh, God's people are uh, reflecting on the trauma of living uh, in exile. They've been taken out of their land, the land that God had given them. They're far from God. They've been ravished by foreign nations. And it feels like God has just forgotten them. They just do not know what God is up to. Uh, It's a big book. Uh, We said we're going through a series uh, in the evenings at Trinity, uh, looking at some of the prophets that we don't often look at. Ezekiel definitely falls, I guess, into one of those categories. Uh, It's a big book. I was trying to remember if I've ever heard a sermon on Ezekiel. I don't think I have, actually. I I certainly can't recall it if I have heard it. Uh, So uh, there we go. Hopefully you'll remember the sermon more than I have done. Uh, Ezekiel is a long book. It's a very big book, actually, in fact. And I think that's probably why we don't look at it very often. Uh, It's quite long. It's quite repetitive in many ways. And yet, actually, the fact that we don't study it is our loss, really, to be honest. Uh, It has much to teach us about the character and the purposes of God. Uh, What is God up to in our world? What was he up to then? What is he up to uh, now as well? Uh, But before we get uh, into Ezekiel properly, we have to do a bit of digging around with uh, ancient history. Um, Henry Ford used to say that history is bunk, and perhaps that's your thoughts uh, tonight. But uh, history uh, for understanding Ezekiel uh, is especially important uh, because it really fits into a historical context Uh, About a century before uh, Ezekiel, uh, the Assyrians had conquered the the ten northern tribes of uh, of Israel. Uh, So so the nation had been divided into two, Israel in the north, or Samaria is also called, and Judah uh, in the south. And about a century before Ezekiel, the Assyrians had come and they'd conquered the northern bit, uh, Israel. They'd made it part of their empire. It had been part of the Assyrian Empire for a little bit. And then the Assyrians, in turn, had been conquered by the Babylonians. This is what kind of tended to happen in those days. Big nations rose up and conquered uh, conquered others. Uh, The Babylonians came, and in turn, then that northern bit uh, was made part of the Babylonian uh, Empire. 
Uh, now, the Babylonians weren't content just to leave it there. They decided, well, we can expand a bit more and, uh, and uh, expand our empire. Uh, and they went down and uh, tried to take over the uh, southern kingdom, which is uh, Judah and the city of Jerusalem, where, uh, where uh, Jerusalem is. Uh, there were several years of uh, siege warfare in, uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, eventually Jerusalem fell, and many of the Jews, uh, not quite all of them, but many of them, including Ezekiel, uh, were captured and taken into exile uh, in, uh, in Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians, in turn, uh, installed a, a kind of puppet king who was called Zedekiah to rule uh, the land for them. Uh, but uh, he decided rather unwisely to revolt and try and take uh, the place back and then got destroyed and crushed. And then the Babylonians came back and finished the job, essentially. They uh, completely uh, routed Zedekiah and destroyed Jerusalem uh, along with him. And it was about that time when Jerusalem had been destroyed, Zedekiah had been uh, routed, uh, that Ezekiel was called by God to preach and to declare God's words uh, to his people. Uh, even though he was thousands of miles away uh, in exile, uh, we're told through the, the, through the Holy Spirit, uh, he was given a series of visions that explained what was going on in Jerusalem, but also what was looking ahead to what God was going to do in the future, uh, how he's going to uh, deal with his people, what he's going to do in the world, and kind of where things are all uh, going. Uh, even though Ezekiel is quite a long book, uh, it's actually quite neatly organised. Uh, it falls very conveniently for a preacher who likes three-point sermons into three sections, uh, very neatly. Uh, there's section one, which is kind of chapters one to 24, uh, and the focus of those is very much uh, the sort of the fate of Jerusalem and God's people. focus is, is very much kind of immediately on God's people and on Jerusalem. Uh, then you have a second section, which is sort of chapters 25 through to 32, uh, which uh, actually was given to Ezekiel quite a few years after that first bit. It was a break uh, in God's uh, speaking, sort of, uh, particularly to Ezekiel. Uh, and that changes focus onto Judah's neighbours. So it looks at kind of the, the, the pagan nations around uh, Judah. And then finally we have chapter, uh, sort of section three, which I guess is probably the bit, if we know anything about Ezekiel, this is the bit we probably know most of all, uh, chapters 33, 3 to uh, 48 at the end. Uh, chapter, uh, chapters 33 to 48 were given probably about probably 13 years or so after the second sort of group of chapters. And again, the focus changes again. It goes from the nations of, uh, that surround Judah uh, back to God's people, and talks about God's plans for, for Judah and his people. And I want to just take a kind of brief look at each of those kind of sections, as it were. Uh, we can't quite look at everything this evening. I think when I first prepped this sermon, I probably had about 50 minutes worth of material. So I tried to, uh, tried to cut it down to an acceptable amount. But we'll see how we go. And uh, we'll see whether anything survives of Ezekiel at the end of it. But uh, let's uh, start, shall we, and have a look at that first section, uh, chapters 1 through to 24. And I'll try to sum it up by, uh, by giving it this title. I think it's about God's retribution on his people. God's retribution on his people. Uh, when we start uh, in Ezekiel, uh, with the start of Ezekiel's ministry, uh, Ezekiel's in a bit of a weird position, really. Uh, he is a priest. We know that much about him. We don't know loads about him, but we know he was a priest. He was called to represent God's people uh, in the temple. And yet the strange thing is he can't actually be a priest because there isn't a temple to be a priest in. He's in exile. He was probably uh, worshipping in the, in the kind of a sort of proto-synagogue, as, as would have happened. I'm sure the Jews, Jews kept up worship when they were in exile. 
but he wasn't fu- functioning as a priest. He wasn't exercising his priestly ministry. Uh, and suddenly, in the middle of this, God calls him uh, to be a prophet out of the blue. You can see that in the, in the first few chapters. There's this dramatic vision uh, that he's given of God. And he's called to declare this God to the people. God is on his throne, Ezekiel is told. He's, uh, he is powerful. He's sovereign. Even though God's people are in exile, God is still reigning in power. And Ezekiel is to declare God's word uh, to them. Uh, most preachers at some point have to preach fairly uncomfortable messages uh, to, uh, to people uh, that you'd rather not preach about. Uh, but Ezekiel's, I think, was particularly uncomfortable. Uh, we got a hint of that, didn't we, in that reading that Jason read for us in chapter 3. Uh, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel was called to, to be a watchman. He was called to warn God's people of their wicked ways. Uh, they had turned their back on God. They were, uh, they were rebellious people. And in particular, he was to tell them that Jerusalem was going to fall. Jerusalem, the holy city. You remember that it had uh, at least been attacked, uh, but it hadn't been completely destroyed. And Ezekiel is kind of looking ahead and saying, look, actually, it's going to be game over for Jerusalem. Just in fact, as the prophet Jeremiah had promised uh, a few years before, uh, God is always true to his promises. And Ezekiel uh, was called to declare that. We might wonder how things got quite so bad that God would allow Jerusalem, his, his holy city, uh, to fall like this. Well, I think if we read through this first section of Ezekiel, there's three kind of big reasons, really, why uh, things had got quite so bad uh, and why God uh, felt uh, he needed to judge his people. Uh, the first big reason is idolatry, uh, put it simply. Uh, if you read in chapter 8, you flick forward with me to chapter 8, uh, we get this uh, you know, astonishing picture, really, of the extent of Israel's idolatry. They really had turned their back on God and were worshipping all the false uh, pagan gods. Uh, Ezekiel has a vision here of what's going on in the temple. Uh, they were even worshipping false gods in the temple that God had called them to, uh, to build as a place uh, for his dwelling. Uh, they were, uh, verse 6 of chapter 8, he said to them, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The detestable, utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Uh, God had warned his people back uh, in the Old Testament again and again that he was a jealous God. God demands our full worship, our wholehearted worship. He cannot be satisfied with his people uh, running after false gods. Uh, He's a jealous God who wants to be worshipped alone. And we see here that actually that's really not what was going on at all in uh, in Judah at that time. God's people had completely ignored his command and they were guilty of idolatry. But idolatry wasn't the only problem. Uh, The second problem was uh, immorality. Uh, They were people uh, who were completely immoral. Uh, time and time again in these very early chapters of Ezekiel, uh, Jerusalem is described as the sort of the bloody city or the city of bloodshed. Uh, and it's the prophet's way of sort of emphasising just quite how bad things had got here. Uh, it seems as though uh, violence and exploitation were completely rife among God's people uh, in the city. Uh, for a people who'd been given the law of God, they knew at what God had called them to be. They knew God's ways of justice, mercy, and holiness. It was a pretty terrible situation to be in. 
Uh, a city of bloodshed, that's not a description you'd want to give of any uh, city, is it? Last of all, God's uh, city and his people. Uh, not just idolatry, not just immorality, uh, but thirdly, the big problem seems to have been ingratitude. Uh, they were completely ungrateful for all uh, that God had done for them. Uh, and you see this particularly from chapter 15 and onwards. If you flick forward to chapter 15, uh, Ezekiel kind of gives these, uh, these a series of these really dramatic visions. Uh, and they all kind of compare God's people to different things. So uh, chapter 15 compares uh, uh, Jerusalem to being a, a useless vine. It's a sort of idea it's a kind of a completely useless and unfruitful vine. It's bearing no fruit because it's been unfaithful. Uh, it goes on, there's a vision of, uh, of Jerusalem and the people as uh, being like a prostitute. Uh, they had been completely unfaithful to God and uh, were sort of dabbling in things that they shouldn't have been. Uh, again and again, there's lots of these different visions uh, that Ezekiel gets given. Uh, people, the people were completely ungrateful to God for all that he'd done and determined to walk away from him. Dreadful situation. Uh, idolatry, immorality, and ingratitude. It's easy to be seduced, isn't it, into thinking that from the outside things aren't quite as bad as they really are. And I think that was probably the situation largely that Ezekiel was speaking into. Of course, people weren't stupid. I mean, they knew that there was some, things weren't quite as good as they might be. But I think there's a sense from Ezekiel that really they, they, they didn't realise quite how bad things had really got. Uh, they knew that they weren't really living up to the Lord's standards. But I think they thought that basically it was all right. God wasn't that disappointed with them. Everything would kind of turn out all right in the wash. Uh, and I think it's quite easy for us to be like that. Uh, my, um, my parents-in-law uh, have um, some trees in their garden. This is a sort of illustration that might help us get this. Uh, they have some, several large trees in their garden. And, and from the outside, they all look really strong and healthy. They're big trees, and they're sort of flourishing trees. Uh, they were astonished about a year ago in storms uh, when half of them fell down. Uh, they, they, they'd, one day they were standing firm. The next day they were strewn across, uh, across the garden. Uh, and when they examined them, they discovered that inside they were completely rotten. Uh, straight through the core. Uh, and it's an illustration, I think, of what the situation can often be like. It can look good on the outside, just as those trees did, or, or at least not look as bad as we think it is. Some of the trees were showing a bit of kind of disease, but essentially they looked all right, they looked strong, they looked like they were going to stand for plenty more years yet. But actually they were rotten inside. And that's the situation that we have here. Things look okay, maybe, could be better, but not that bad. But really they are much worse uh, than uh, we could think. And God's promise to his people is that he can't ignore sin. He can't just leave it alone. He can't say it doesn't matter. Uh, Sin has consequences. God is a holy God, and he won't ignore it. I think it's very easy, isn't it, for us to be a bit like God's people in uh, Ezekiel's age. It's a bit like Judah. Uh, We can refuse to walk in God's ways, and yet we can kind of deceive ourselves that actually it's not as bad as we think it is. Uh, we can uh, just, you know, we, we can be deceived, I guess. And uh, we can think, well, God is a loving God. He'll always have us back, won't he? And, uh, well, it's not that big a deal, really. Uh, we rejoice, of course. As God's people, we know that he is gracious. He always has us back. Uh, because of the Lord Jesus, he's forgiven our sins. He's blotted out our transgressions. And yet still he is a holy God. He says, be holy, for I am holy. And that's the call that he gave to his people back in Ezekiel's age. It's the call that he has given to his people uh, today, as he has always done. 
And he causes people to be holy, to uh, acknowledge him and to follow in his ways. Uh, Will we do that? Will we return to him? Or will we keep following our own paths? Well, if that was the uh, first uh, part of uh, Ezekiel, let's move uh, on to the second uh, section, which uh, sort of is uh, chapters 25 through to 32. And I've given this the title of uh, God's Revenge uh, on the Nations. God's Revenge on the Nations. I I said, uh, from the the second chapter, uh, sort of second section of uh, Ezekiel, uh, starts to uh, shift in focus. Uh, Ezekiel kind of pans back. He's five years on from when the last uh, section uh, was given to him. And he pans back to start to address uh, um, Ezekiel's, Judah's neighbours uh, around her. And again, if we want to kind of understand why he does this, we have to understand a little bit of what's going on in the history uh, here. Uh, so by this time, by the time that Ezekiel was receiving these visions, uh, the, Jerusalem had been completely destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, and it had caused great delight uh, to Israel and Judah's uh, neighbours uh, many of them have been looking for uh, Jerusalem to fall and Israel and Judah to be wiped out for donkey's years. They've been longing for this day uh, to happen. And when they realised that they were, uh, both the nations were very weak, uh, they seized their opportunity uh, to attack the, the Jews and to uh, exploit them. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the Edomites and the Ammonites committed horrific atrocities uh, against the Jews. Many people were killed in, in horrific ways. Uh, sadly, then as now, anti-Semitism is rife. The Jews have always been a people who have been uh, persecuted. It's just as true in those days as it is uh, in our own uh, day. And understandably, as many of the Jews either experienced these atrocities or they heard about them from relatives and friends and family, uh, many of them became deeply, deeply bitter towards these foreigners who'd uh, attacked them. And also, in turn, towards God, who they thought had kind of abandoned them. Why had God let this happen to them? How could it happen? They're his people. Surely he should look after them and care for them. Uh, We get a sense of kind of how they're feeling from some of the psalms that were written at this uh, time. Uh, Psalm 137 is probably the one that most of us will will be familiar with. Uh, It starts with a lament in in a foreign land, as they kind of lament that they're in exile. And then it moves into that prayer uh, that the heads of the Edomite babies would be smashed against the rocks. And it's always one when you read it, you sort of find yourself wondering what's going on. Uh, When you get a sense of the context, you can start to see uh, this is the heartfelt prayer of people who really are pretty bitter and angry. They have suffered horrific atrocities, uh, bullying uh, and uh, violence. And frankly, they're just longing that God should meet it out in kind to uh, those people who've done that to them. They want their enemies to suffer uh, as they have done. Or perhaps uh, the Jews are wondering if God had forgotten them. And actually, the second section of Ezekiel really answers that question. No, God has not forgotten his people and he is not blind to what has been going on. Uh, he will act in justice on their behalf. At the same time, it shows that he is the God of all the earth. Uh, He cares about the attitudes of all people, not just his people, but all the people uh, on planet earth. Uh, What is it specifically that God is angry with these nations for? Well, we can kind of look through the oracles, and and, and there's lots of things, really, that that seem to have have aroused uh, God's anger. We've sort of talked about the Ammonites, uh, and you can get a picture of of what was going on there in uh, chapter 25, uh, it was a prophecy against Ammon uh, that it seems like they'd gloated over the destruction of God's temple. 
and his people. They'd, they'd kind of you know, gloated over this symbolic demonstration of the weakness of God's uh, people. And I guess it's a de- demonstration of their rejection of God as well, really. Uh, the nation of Moab in chapter 25 is also uh, mentioned. Uh, they had rejoiced over Judah's fall and rejoiced that Judah seemed to become like all the other nations, uh, just like the rest of them. Uh, Edom and Philistia had uh, used Judah's weakness as an opportunity to extract revenge for kind of past, past hurts, I suppose. Uh, the nation that gets the most attention is Tyre. Uh, Tyre gets a, gets a, a good uh, couple of chapters to, uh, to focus. Uh, they seem to have been the ones who are particularly guilty. Uh, what they have been guilty of is we can see in chapter 28, uh, the first couple of verses. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, chapter 28, verse 2. In the pride of your heart you say... I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Uh, They have sought to take the place in the world that belongs only to God. You don't know the details. But clearly in God's eyes, that's what they've done. They've set themselves up against God. Uh, The picture is, uh, is clear, isn't it, as we build it up. Again and again, the nations of the world have ignored God and attacked his people. Uh, with no fear at all of the consequences or of any kind of punishment. And Ezekiel promises in this second section that that is not going to go unchallenged. God is not ignorant, he's not blind to what these people have done. Uh, He doesn't sit on by whilst his people and his name suffer and are reviled. Uh, One day the world will know that he is the Lord and all will bow before him. I was reading uh, recently, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, uh, Christians of all religious groups in the world are the most persecuted. Uh, In many parts of the world, to own the name of Christ is no uh, easy or light thing. Uh, Apparently, every month, on average, there are 180 people in the world who call Jesus Christ Lord, who lose their lives because they name him as their Lord and Saviour. 180 people worldwide, on average, every month lose their lives for calling Jesus Lord. It's a shocking statistic, isn't it? I was appalled when I heard that and read it. Uh, And to be honest, I was angry, actually. That was my first response. I mean, how can God let this happen? How can God uh, sit there whilst people in North Korea, uh, in in Iran, across uh, the uh, the the, the Muslim-majority world, uh, uh, and other places, uh, get put to death uh, for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something is wrong there, is it not? And yet Ezekiel's words, I think, act as a reassurance to us, don't they? God is not ignorant. Uh, God has not forgotten his people. Anyone who persecutes his people, who sets themselves up against the Lord, uh, will be held to account. Uh, whoever they happen to be, whoever, uh, the, whoever they think they are in this life, uh, they will uh, meet their Uh, just deserts. Uh, There will be a day when the Lord Jesus will return uh, for his people who know him and love him. That will be a day of vindication. Those of us who've been away uh, this weekend in the 20s and 30s and students weekend have been looking at two Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, Paul says that to a people who are really struggling uh, with being persecuted. He says that actually pressure shows God's justice because one day when the Lord Jesus returns, all who love him will be glorified and share in his glory and all those who have persecuted his people and reviled his name uh, will face the consequences. Uh, God will take his revenge on those who defy his name and destroy his people.
I guess there's a couple of ways in which we could respond to that, couldn't we? I guess, first of all, we need to pray for mercy, don't we, on those people. There are people who hate the name of the Lord Jesus. And yet the truth of the Bible is, and so often through history, that often those who have hated the Lord Jesus actually have also turned out in his mercy to be those who have stood for him and become some of his most devoted followers. We should pray that he would be at work turning hearts to him. But we should also be reassured, shouldn't we? Uh, Maybe we're experiencing opposition uh, for owning the name of Jesus in our context, whether it's at home, maybe family members, maybe it's in in the workplace, uh, in the lecture room. Uh, Some of us at Holy Trinity will know people in other lands or have friends who know folks in other lands who who know the daily, the pressure of uh, living for Jesus in a hostile world. Uh, God has not forgotten us or those people in those lands. Uh, One day he will display his justice and power and Christ will be acknowledged as the Lord in all the earth and no one will stand against him. Fine, let's look at uh, the last uh, section of Ezekiel, shall we? Chapters 33, through, 33 even through to uh, chapter 48. And I, I've given this the title of God's restoration uh, of uh, his people. God's restoration of his people. Well, so far Ezekiel's been a bit gloomy, really. It doesn't feel like there's been an awful lot uh, that uh, is particularly uplifting. We might be starting to wonder if things are going get, to uh, get brighter. Uh, well, chapter 33 is that kind of turning point where things do start to uh, look distinctly better. Uh, Ezekiel turns his focus back from the uh, pagan nations uh, and back to uh, the people of God. And he's got good news. God hasn't forgotten them. He has plans to prosper them and plans to give them a hope uh, and a future. Uh, It's not all good. Uh, Chapter 34 uh, tells us that there's trouble. There's trouble at the top. Uh, The uh, people who God has appointed to uh, to care for them have proved to be uh, negligent. They're neglecting. Uh, the people. They are sheep without a shepherd, uh, as it were. And the answer, of course, is one of the great moments of Ezekiel that God uh, gives us, uh, that one day uh, God himself will come. He will gather his flock uh, together and he will place over them a greater shepherd, a great shepherd, a faithful shepherd who will faithfully tend uh, his people. Uh, it's a, a wonderful vision of uh, what the Lord uh, will do. Verse 11 of chapter 34. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep? I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel. Wonderful picture, isn't it? And of course we know, uh, reading it in the lights of uh, the Lord Jesus' words, John chapter 10, that he is the fulfilment of that promise. He's the good shepherd who shepherds his people uh, faithfully. Uh, he will, uh, will care for them and, uh, and uh, gather them together. And in fact, ultimately lay down his life for the sheep. He is the ultimate faithful shepherd uh, like no other. But that's not all. That's not all uh, that uh, God has promised for them. Uh, For the sake of his name, God goes on. He assures his people that actually they are going to return to the land that he'd given them. Uh, And even more than that, God's going to do something in them spiritually. He's going to revive their hearts. He's going to sort them out. Uh, He's going to give them new hearts of flesh instead of their hard hearts of stone that are leading them away from him. Uh, He's going to enable them to follow him 
uh, faithfully and live again. So again, chapter uh, 36 for us. We have this uh, uh, dramatic vision of what the Lord is going to be, uh, going to be doing in them. Uh, verse uh, 26 of uh, chapter, th- or 25 of verse 25 of chapter 36. Uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you, says the Lord, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep uh, my laws. Wonderful picture, isn't it, of God's grace to his people. They've been so unfaithful, and yet God's promise to them was that he was going to come and sort them out, give them new hearts to help them to follow him uh, in ways that they never could. And all this culminates, really, in the passage in Ezekiel that most of us probably know, if we know anything of Ezekiel. Uh, Chapter 37, the vision of the dry bones. Uh, Ezekiel is given a a picture of um, a valley full of uh, kind of dry bones on the dusty floor of the valley. And he's given a picture of the spirit moving through these bones and bringing them back to, to life again. Uh, it's a powerful picture of what God is going to do to his people. By his spirit, he's going to breathe new life into them. And he's going to revive them again. Uh, he follows that up with another vision, a vision of these sticks being welded together, uh, two sticks becoming one. And again, it's another picture of what God is going to do. Not only is he going to revive them, he's going to bring them back to new spiritual life, but he's going to unite them again into being uh, one people. The two nations uh, are going to be united into one. But even more than that, God is going to make uh, Jews and Gentiles into uh, one people. Uh, It's a picture, again, of what Jesus uh, will do. Uh, Paul explains it for us uh, in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, He describes Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made the two one. Because Jesus died uh, on the cross, he made it possible for all to have peace with God and to be welcomed into his people. Uh, We're all one in Christ Jesus, as Paul declares. Uh, Through the Lord Jesus, all divisions have been abolished, and we are united people under him. Uh, It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Uh, God's restored, revived, reunited people, together, dwelling uh, with God under Christ, our perfect shepherd and our perfect king and our perfect priest. Well, what about the temple? What was going on with the temple? Uh, for Ezekiel's, uh, for people in Ezekiel's uh, day, that was one of the things that was really most serious for them. The temple, of course, was the place where they believed God dwelt, and God had said he would make his dwelling uh, there in the temple. And the loss of the temple, when it had been destroyed, was really the most, one of the most serious things that had happened to them. I think whatever else happened, they always assumed that the temple was going to survive in some way. Uh, they could kind of envisage them going off into exile and so on and so forth and being attacked and, and so on. But to lose the temple was a very, very, very serious thing. And actually, this is where uh, Ezekiel starts to get very difficult to uh, understand. Uh, from chapter 40 onwards, uh, Ezekiel gives us this detailed description of, of a new temple. It's incredibly detailed. Uh, it's really kind of, you know, like a sort of architect's or builder's uh, description of what the temple is going to look like. Uh, the problem is, this temple has never actually been built. <laughs> uh, the Jews did build another temple, and of course they returned uh, back to Jerusalem. Uh, but it never looked anything like this. <laughs> uh, Herod uh, then was in the process of, uh, of restoring the temple and sort of enlarging it and developing it uh, when it was destroyed again by the Romans. 
but it never made it to this stage. In fact, it never really got anywhere, anything like it. And it's a little bit hard to know exactly how we should understand these, these uh, chapters uh, in Ezekiel. Uh, there's lots of different kind of uh, understandings that have been offered. Uh, some people think it's a, uh, basically that this is what the Jews should have built, and basically they were lazy and didn't build it, <laughs> and they were unfaithful. Possibly, I don't know. Uh, some people think it's, it is actually a vision of uh, something that's going to be built uh, on the New Jerusalem uh, at the end of uh, when Jesus comes and he, at the new heavens and the new earth. It's a kind of picture of what will happen. Uh, others take it as a, a sort of a, a powerful vision of kind of the reality of God dwelling with his people. It's trying to kind of get across how amazing it is that God is coming and he's going to dwell with his people and they're all going to be together. I don't quite know which one I'm going to plump for. I think if I, if I was pushed on it, I'd probably go for the third one, but you may differ on that, and there's plenty of people who do differ, so we, we don't really know. However we understand it, there's one thing that we can take away from it, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, because Jesus is Emmanuel, he's God with us, and because by his Spirit, God dwells within us in our hearts, uh, all of us who trust in him, all of us who are part of God's people, are his holy temple. Again and again, the New Testament uh, tells us that. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, he says it again in Ephesians, he says it uh, again, uh, Peter says it famously in, in, his, uh, in his first letter. He says this, uh, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood. And looking on even further, when we get to Revelation, one day we can see that in the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God will be with men, and he will live with us forever as his people. Uh, God will restore his people. Those promises that were made to uh, God's people back by Ezekiel will find their fulfillment one day fully in the Lord Jesus and in the new heavens and the new earth. He's already begun his work. Uh, when I was uh, a boy and uh, one Christmas, I asked my parents for a uh, Scalextric. I don't know if anyone else had Scalextrics when they were little. If they're still being made now. Probably kids don't like Scalextrics. They're on, on computers or something, I suppose. Uh, I was very excited when I uh, got to, uh, to Christmas Day and opened it up and discovered that it was a, it was a Scalextric, just as I'd asked for it. And yet, actually, it was even better than that. It wasn't just the kind of bog-standard Scalextric. It was a deluxe version with kind of like banks and extra, you know, track and all that kind of thing, and an extra car as well to go with it. Uh, what I thought was good was actually even better than I'd hoped for. And I guess there's a sense of that really here with Ezekiel in these last chapters. It's pretty good, and it must have sounded pretty good to God's people. God hadn't forgotten them. He had a plan for them. He was going to restore them. And actually, it's even better. It's even better than that. It's not just... Uh, that God was going to restore them, but he was going to dwell with them and be uh, their gods. And they look forward to that day when all God's people will be gathered together uh, to, to dwell with him and to praise his name. And even better than that for us, it's not just a promise for God's people back in Ezekiel's day, it's a promise for us today. We're invited to be part of it. We, the people who initially were outside of God's covenant, people who'd been unfaithful to him, can be welcomed back through the Lord Jesus to be his people. Uh, we can be hit with him, and he'll be at the centre. And the question for us, really, I want to leave us with is, will we do that? Will we turn back to him and align ourselves uh, with him? Will we accept that invitation to be part of his people? God makes a wonderful promise that he promises to restore us, to transform our hearts, uh, to uh, make us into his people, his faithful people, 
uh, to walk in his ways. And we can be part of that, if only we'll accept that uh, invitation. What is God up to? Ezekiel shows us what God's up to. He's calling his people to holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. He's calling the nations to account, all those who have not uh, listened to him and have not trusted in him. And he's renewing his people and his world for the sake of his name and gathering his people together into one people under the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be part of it? Amen.